Well, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 13, Hebrews chapter 13. And if you need a copy of the scriptures, as we look at Hebrews 13, the fellows have some, Larry and Jean, and... Aaron, so get their attention if you need one, they'll get one to you. We also have an outline inserted in your program for you to follow along as we look at Hebrews 13. If you all think of it this afternoon, uh, please pray about a memorial service at uh, 2.30 that Carol Pantelli and her mother are having in honor of her father who passed away this past year, most of you know. We're going to have family at that memorial service, and some of that family and friends that will be there will be folks who don't know Jesus. And I have an opportunity to present the gospel there, and so please be in prayer for that service, and particularly for those who will be there that don't know Christ that they might come to know him. Have you ever known a professing Christian who has learned Christianese? You know what I mean, Christianese? It's the language Christians speak. And so we talk fellowships, we talk singspirations, we talk born again, we know all the language. It's not stuff that most people say, it's inside talk. Christianese. It's the person who can talk the talk, but does not walk the walk. It's the person who looks the part on Sunday, but what they profess does not translate into Monday. Does not translate into their work, into the relationships they have at home. In the way they talk, in the way they view life, they are very much like everybody else in the world. A Sunday-only Christian, but not necessarily Monday through Saturday. But friends, we need to understand that the gospel is not designed to be merely a way of escape. But it's also to be a way of life. It's not just a way of escape. It's not just a way to escape hell. It is indeed in addition to be a way of life. And part of the problem with having so many professing Christians who are not apparently possessing Christians is the way that the gospel is often presented to folks. It's often presented as a sort of fire insurance, which once you obtain it, you put it in the drawer and you pull it out next time you think you might need it. So if you're laid up in the hospital in serious condition, you want to make sure you've got that policy. And you remind yourself of the time that you prayed a prayer, but sadly nothing has really changed in your day-to-day walk. So in the meantime, in the day-to-day of life, the gospel has made little difference. We have to present the gospel in such a way that once presented, it can actually be rejected. That somebody understands it enough to say, no, I don't want to go that way. But see, that will only happen if you present the gospel as not just a way of escape, but as a way of life. If you present it as a way of life, then someone can say, no, I don't want to go that route. So we have to present it in such a way that it can be rejected. But often it's presented in such a way that no one could reject it. It's just a deal you can't refuse. So when I was young, there was a a group, a Christian group called Dallas Home and Praise. Some of you are old enough to remember them. They had a hit song. They had the lyrics that said, Anybody here want to live forever? Say, I do. Anybody here want to walk on golden streets? Say, I do. Now you think about that for a second. Have you ever met anyone in your life who could reject that? Want to live forever? No, not me. How about those golden streets? Now I like the asphalt out of my place. And so very often it's presented in such a way, it's a deal you can't refuse. It can't be rejected. If what we're inviting folks to is something that no one would reject, now hear this, then we're not inviting them to the same thing that we find in the Bible. Because you find in the Bible people saying, no, I don't want to go that route. I understand the implications of this for me and my family and a radical change in my life. It's going to make a difference Monday through Saturday. I don't want to go that route. 
And so you have as one example the rich young ruler. The Bible tells us that a man came up to Jesus and he asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Now, Jesus knew that this man nor any other human could obey God's law completely. But Jesus was seeking to teach this man a lesson to show him his need for Jesus. Because the Bible says that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law shows us God's holy character, the fact that we don't measure up, and therefore we need someone, something outside of ourselves. Jesus is showing that to this man. If you want to have life, keep the commandments. And the man says, I've kept them all. And so Jesus says, in effect, all right, I'll take you at your word. He knows better, but I'll take you at your word. And then Jesus says this, if you want to be perfect, then go sell your possessions and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now you think about what Jesus just did there. He, in effect, chased away a guy who said, tell me how I can go to heaven. And we would have presented it, say, I do. Sign right here. Here's your way of escape. Rather than here is a radically different way of life. In fact, the disciples said when, we, when they heard this, they were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We have to present the message in such a way that people understand it is a different way of life. Paul did the same thing when he preached to a group of pagan philosophers in Athens, Greece. He preached a message of repentance, as we'll see in a moment. That word repentance is literally a change of mind. That's what the word means in your New Testament, to change one's mind. But it's presented in the New Testament as a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Repentance is a change of mind leading to a change of life. And so Paul told these philosophers, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And so what was the response? The Bible tells us some sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. A few men became followers and believed. And so we always have to present the message in such a way that people understand its implications such that they can say, no, I'm not going that route. It happened in the Bible. It must happen in our presentations as well. The Bible does not leave us at being Sunday-only Christians. People for whom no change has taken place Monday through Saturday. And this fact, friends, the fact that the gospel is not only a way of escape, but a way of life, explains why the books of your New Testament always include a section on how we're to live. Always. They are not just, this is what Jesus has done, although they're filled with that, thanks be to God. It's the basis for how we live. But they also have exhortation explaining how it is we are to live. Books in your New Testament always have an explanation about who we are and what we have in Christ. But there's always following that commands regarding how we're to live. It's supposed to make a difference on Monday. So we come to the final chapter of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. And the chapter is all about commands to put into practice what has been learned in the first 12 chapters. Now, what's been presented in those first 12 chapters? Well, it's a thorough explanation of the superiority of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews has been all about the superiority of Christ and the fact that he has come to us means that now we can draw near to God when prior to Jesus Christ coming, God coming in the form of coming as man, people were fearful of this transcendent God. And now we are bid because of him, you can draw near to me. We've seen that Christ is superior in who he is. 
as compared to any other person you can think of. And we're given examples in the book of Hebrews to any of the prophets who came before. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Christ is superior to all of those prophets that came before. In chapter 1 and verse 5 through chapter 2 and verse 18, Christ is superior to angels. In chapter 3, he's superior to Moses. In chapter 5 through chapter 7, he's superior to the high priest Aaron. Christ is superior in who he is when compared to anyone that you can think of. But not only that, he's superior in what he's done. The eternal covenant that Jesus inaugurated and they ratified by his own blood is superior to the old covenant that was based upon the law, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Jesus has made it possible for us to then draw near to God in the words of the writer of Hebrews. In fact, if you'll just hold your finger for just a moment in chapter 13, we'll come back to it. That's our passage. But if you'll take a look at chapter 10. Beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And this passage is then followed by the fourth of five warnings in the book of Hebrews. You have a warning in chapter 2, a warning in, in chapter 3, one in chapter 6, one in chapter 10. We saw one last week at the end of, of chapter 12. And this passage we just read is, is followed immediately by the fourth of those five warnings in chapter 10 regarding a failure to respond appropriately to God's overture to us in Christ. But I want you to notice that just before that warning in chapter 10, and just after the warning in chapter 12 that we're going to see today, we're told what we need to do. In chapter 10, we're to show that we're drawing near to God by believing. The passage I just read, we read together in chapter 10, says that we're to show full assurance of faith. We're to show that we're drawing near to God by believing, but also by behaving. And that behavior in chapter 10, and we're going to see now in chapter 13, has to do with our actions toward one another. Did you read that in chapter 10? Let us encourage one another. We're going to see that again now in chapter 13, the final chapter of the book. It has to do with how we're to conduct ourselves as Christians. In light of our relationship to Christ, who is superior to anyone and anything. Now please get this. That we believe in that superiority. That there is no one and no thing that compares to Jesus. That we believe that is shown by the behavior of his people. You see, we don't just say, yeah, Jesus is great. We live like Jesus is great. We live that way Monday through Saturday. We can and we should revel in the grace of God that forgives imperfect people and does not reject us when we fail. But we should not use that as an excuse for failure. We should not allow it to blind us to what's at stake in our behavior as those who profess Jesus. If Christ is all that the writer of Hebrews has said that he is, and he is, right? He's all that. If he is all that the writer has said, then we should, no, we must respond appropriately. And interestingly, a major part of that appropriate response is, again, how we interact with each other. Now take a look at the outline inserted in your program. 
you see the take-home truth? The way we love and the way we live shows how valuable Jesus is to us. That's what we're going to see at the beginning of chapter 13. The way we love and the way we live shows if we really believe Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. Let's ask the Lord to help us then as we look together at chapter 13. Father, we thank you for these sacred moments to look into the pages of your word given to us to show us your character and to serve, as it were, as a mirror for us as we hold our, behold our own faces in the mirror of the word of God. We see your character there and see that we don't measure up. But it's also a revelation of your grace to us in Jesus, giving us what we need in order to live in a way that pleases you. We ask you to help us in these moments as we consider how you have told us to live in order to show the value, the superiority of Jesus Christ in our lives, in every aspect of our lives. And help us, Lord, to leave this place, availing ourselves of your grace in order to do what you have commanded, and thereby better bring, better bring glory to your name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I say in your outline that we show the value of Jesus, first of all, in how we love. Notice chapter 13, verse 1. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Now this is a reminder of what Jesus had told his first followers, you may remember, in the upper room the night before he died. In John chapter 13, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying that we are to keep on loving each other as brothers, as those who profess Christ. One of the evidences that we value him above everyone else is seen in how we behave toward one another. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Loving each other as brothers, or continue in brotherly love. The word that's translated brotherly love is Philadelphia. Philos is the Greek word. One of the Greek words in your New Testament for love. Delphos is brother. Philadelphia, brotherly love. And so you go to Philadelphia, you see the sign, city of brotherly love. Misnomer if ever there was one. But nonetheless, we are to be known as people of Philadelphia, people of brotherly love. And these folks needed to be encouraged to continue. It says keep on, continue. Why? Because they were already doing this, but apparently were beginning to lose sight of the need to show Christ and the value of Christ in their behavior toward one another. Now, why might they have lost sight of that? Because the difficulties of living as a Christian in a fallen world have begun to impinge upon them. And when those difficulties crash in on us, we often respond in sinful ways. We, myself included, you know what I'm talking about. You've done it. And that's what they were doing here. It's not worth it. In fact, I'm kind of sick of these people. You know, life's already difficult enough without all these whiners we have at church. Some of you may have indeed demonstrated love for God's people by your actions in the past, but you've withdrawn. The fact is you're a shell of what you once were. You've allowed the difficulties of a fallen world and or of fallen people to discourage you from showing Christ's worth by loving what he values, in this case, his people. And these readers were in that position. They needed to be reminded of what Scripture says many times. Notice what the Bible says. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now about brotherly love, you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Peter says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Peter says again, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. 
we are friends, if we pro- pro- profess Christ, and I trust, actually possess Christ, if that's the case, then we are in the family of God. And that's why these passages can speak of brotherly and sisterly love. We are in the same spiritual family. Now, why are we in that same spiritual family? Because according to chapter 2 and verse 11 of the book of Hebrews, Jesus has become our brother. And we now have been invited into God's family so that God is now our father. We are adopted into his family. Jesus, the firstborn, the preeminent one of many brothers, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 tells us. And so if we've come to Christ, we are now in the same spiritual family. And so we love now because he does. And we do so in the same way that he does. Now, we'll be reminded of what that way is in just a bit. But for now, I understand that we can mistake love, incorrectly define love, as simply being involved in the social stuff that the church does. Now, you should be involved in the social stuff that the church does, because that helps you, as we're going to see, get to know each other and thereby better love each other. But the truth is, a church can become a club like any other organization, can it not? And people simply value the social setting and the safety for their children without having any sight at all to the spiritual reality of what's happening here. We're united together because we are one in Christ. And we are bound together to carry out a mission that Christ has given us. And so I seek to build you up and you seek to build me up so that we can more effectively carry out that work for his glory. But it can become just a social thing. How will you know if it's become a social thing for you? Here's one indication. When you get together with your brothers and sisters, what do you talk about all the time? You ever think about that? When we finish here and we go into cafe community, what do you talk about all the time? Is it just social stuff? If that's the case, then, friends, this relationship that is to be much deeper, much more profound than that, has simply become a social thing for us. The Bible teaches that love is this. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. Love is doing what's in the best interest of another. Now, we cannot love as we ought if we don't seek to know what one another needs. I can't do what's in your best interest if I don't know what you need at a given time, so therefore I need to be in relationship with you. I need to get to know you and you me. And we can't know what we need if we don't seek to know one another. If our love relationship with each other is first based on our relationship with Jesus, which is what it's supposed to be, and if how we love one another is dependent on how Jesus loves, then it follows that the closer we are to Jesus, the more and better we'll love his people. Now, the reverse is true as well. If we're not loving his people, if we're not seeking to get to know them, involved in their lives, to do what's in their best interest, if we're not loving his people, not basking in and living in light of, then, his love. We cannot say, hey, just because I'm sick of you people... Doesn't mean I'm cold on Jesus. Being warm toward Jesus means being warm toward his people. They go hand in hand. So that our love for each other, now hear this, is a fair barometer of our spiritual condition. Are you all listening? If I don't care to get to know these people, then I'm not loving to do what's in their best interest. And if I don't love Jesus' people, I'm not warm toward Jesus, no matter what I profess. And so we have to love those that we know. Verse 1 in your outline. And consistent practice with those we know will do this. It will create a generous impulse that causes us to react with openness when showing love toward those we may not know. I mean, for heaven's sake, if I can't love the people I know, how am 
I going to love the people that just sort of wander in that I don't know? That God, in His sovereign providence, brings into my circle, my sphere of influence. How am I going to love those people? And did you know God tells us to do that? To be people of love such that we love those we know and thereby are prepared to love those that we don't know. Verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers. Strangers. You say, hey, the people I do know are strange enough. And I'm supposed to entertain strangers. I say in your outline, we are called to love those that we come to know. These are those who come into, through various means, into our circle of responsibility. They're called strangers. Brotherly love in verse 1, Philadelphia. This is stranger love in verse 2. Philazenia. Xenos is the word for, for stranger. Now, here's what was happening in the early church, such that this was such an important issue that you find, as we'll see, this commanded throughout the New Testament. You all remember that you had itinerant ministry going on in the early church. You had people who would travel around as evangelists to give the message of the gospel. And though they had some places where folks could stay and travel, they certainly didn't have the kind of road system, they didn't have the kind of holiday inns and those kinds of things that people could stay in. And so traveling itinerant Christian evangelists were completely dependent upon the generosity and the hospitality of God's people to welcome them in. And often these were people that they had never met. And so someone would come, and they would often, the New Testament indicates, bring letters of recommendation to show I'm the real deal. I'm coming from such and such a church, and I'm out doing the work of Jesus, but I need a place to stay. Will you put me up? And so we're told in verse 2, do not forget to entertain strangers. That's why the Bible tells us that the spiritually mature are those who are hospitable. Willing to open their home for those who are seeking to advance the Lord's work. To see their home as a place of, as a place of ministry. And so we have these verses throughout Scripture that say a spiritually mature Christian must be, among other things, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. Peter, again in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now notice in 1 Peter chapter 4, it's not just the pastor. Some of you may have noticed the first quote is from 1 Timothy 3, qualifications to be a pastor. I say a spiritually mature Christian because these are qualities that all of us should seek to have, whether you're a pastor or not. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, it's written to all of us. Offer hospitality to one another and do so without grumbling. The Bible says in 3 John to a man named Gaius, Dear friend, you're faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They've told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that, they, so that we may work together for the truth. Now our prerequisite for us to be involved in this kind of opening of our homes for other people, sometimes people we don't know, a prerequisite for that is this, that we prize people and we prize ministry more than possessions. Now let me meddle for a little bit more. In pursuing the American dream, what many of us have done as professing Christians is we have developed and amassed our own little fortresses that people, even the people of God, dare not penetrate. Some of you are part of the church ostensibly, and yet you have never had anyone over to your home. Friends, how can that be in light of what we've read? 
Now, I'm going to keep meddling, okay? Look, I know your stuff is really important. But this will help you. Remember this. You don't own any stuff. It's his stuff. And he gave it to you for his purposes. So, when I was a kid, and we went to play hockey away, we'd sometimes go to Canada and get killed. I've told you that. I loved it when we went south, when we went to Columbus, Ohio. And we would, we would kill the Buckeyes. Anybody south of us, we could kill. Anybody north of us killed us. And I remember as a kid going to this place and staying overnight at this place in Columbus, Ohio, with one of the opposing players on the other team. And uh, his family room was this place that nobody could go in. He couldn't go in. It looked like nobody had ever been in it except the people who laid the carpet and painted it. The people put the furniture in, and they took off. And the furniture had, now if you have this, I'm not talking about you because I don't know about anybody having this, but if you've got like vinyl or plastic, you care too much about that junk. That couch was made for people to sit on. That couch might have been made for people to lay on. And the Bible is saying that that couch was given to you by Almighty God to be used for His purposes. And that includes His people. And so one of the prerequisites is that we prize people and ministry more than possessions. We've got this saying in America, a man's home is his what? Uh, And you're like, that's all I'm doing. Got my castle. It's got a moat around it. I might let the drawbridge down every now and then for contractors to come and make it cooler. Here's one of the other excuses that we use. Not to be involved in people's lives as the Bible directly commands us. You know, I don't have any, we don't have anything in common. Is it the case that two Christians could ever get together and not have anything in common? As a matter of fact, you have the most important thing in the world in common. The Lord Jesus Christ and his work. The only reason we could say we don't have anything in common is because we are in the habit of only talking about circumstantial things. And if we only interact on circumstantial things, then indeed we won't have anything in common. My demographic is not your demographic, and so I hang around with the people that are in my demographic. And so what do we do? How do we apply this in our day and age? In a time where we do have holiday inns, and so these people who are doing that itinerant ministry can go on Priceline and get a nice place for 39 bucks. Well, here's one way you do it. You start having people over. You start getting to know people. You start using what God has given you for the purpose for which he's given it. And here's one way I'd suggest. Over the next two months, you guys are going to start seeing inserted in your program enrollment cards for our home groups, our community groups. And you all know that we ought to have more homes who are willing to host groups than we have people to fit in them. And so when those cards are there, and one of the things on the card is I'm willing to open my home to host a community group. You may not be able to do this. And if you can't, you can't. I understand that. More importantly, God understands it. But you won't blow it off like you have been. You'll say, that's for me. God's given this to me, and I'm going to use it for his purposes. And so we are to love those we know, those we don't know, and then notice, oh, I know, some of you are dying to know what the last part of verse 2 means. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Well, here's the key phrase. It's the last phrase in that verse, without knowing it. So here's what that means. <laughs> you don't have to look for angels. You don't have to be, you know, when somebody knocks you at your door going, nah, not an angel. God, God's, God's point here is this. God is active in ways that we don't know. God is aware of what we are doing with what he has given. That's, why, that's, the, that's the warning here. 
and we're accountable for how we use what he has given. Now thirdly, we're to love, and that shows how we value Jesus. Not only those we know, those we don't know, but those we may never know. Verse 3, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. This church, just like they were in danger of losing the love that they had had for one another at one time, thus verse 1 says, keep on loving one another, but it's apparently starting to wane because of the cares of the world. Likewise, at one time they empathized with those who were in prison. And those who were mistreated for the gospel, we have that recorded back in chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. You'll remember we read there that you joyfully, the writer of Hebrews says, you all joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. And you empathized with those who were in prison. But now they're being told to remember those in prison as if... They were your fellow prisoners. And apparently the reason is, just like their love for one another was beginning to wane, their empathy for one another was beginning to wane. And the reason I say in your outline, it's loving those we may never know. These may be people we know that have been imprisoned for the gospel. But in our situation, more likely, it's people that we've never met and probably never will meet. But we love them anyway. Now, how do we do that? We engage in what I call imaginative sympathy. And I actually, believe it or not, I'm weird enough that I do this. I think about what would it be like to be going out to do the Lord's work in a restricted access country. Like our friends the Selsteads are. Like Tony Fox and his family are. Like Joel Compton and Shelley are. What would, that, what would that be like? What dangers do they face? Or, those are people we know. There are people we don't know in the Sudan who are being persecuted for Jesus. There are people we don't know in virtually any Muslim country you want to name. Places like Pakistan and Saudi Arabia who are suffering for Jesus. And so we engage in imaginative sympathy for those who are in other parts of our God's world carrying out his work. But don't make this mistake, friends. Don't make the mistake of so putting these heroes, and they are heroes, on a pedestal that we dismiss ourselves from the partnership that God has called us to with them. Do you know what I mean by that? Sometimes we say, man, those people are just something. Well, they are something. And thank God for it. But God has called us to be something with them. It's not just God plucks out a few people to carry out His work. We're carrying out His work. And we're going to do everything we can do to support them by prayer and by our finances to speed them on their way. Sympathizing them with them in the difficulty of their work. Now again, we can do this because of our vital connection to Christ. He sympathizes with us. Chapter 4 and verse 14, we do not have a high priest does not sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who is tempted in all points like we are and yet without sin. He sympathizes with us because we're connected with him. Hear this. We can sympathize with all the others who are connected to him as well. So if we're going to show the value of Jesus, we do it in how we love. How we love those we know. How we love those we don't know. How we love those we may never know. Then I say in your outline. We show the value of Jesus in how we live. And we're commanded as followers of Jesus to live lives of purity. Verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all. The marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Why is that here? Well, it's probably in this book written to these folks because of the many isms that were going around in the first century church. I told you about one last week called Marcionism. I mentioned Gnosticism as well. Here's another one, asceticism. And an ascetic was just somebody who said, you're more spiritual if you deny yourself of things. And so the most spiritual person was sometimes considered to be the person who remained single 
person who deprived himself or herself of sexual pleasure within the bounds of, of marriage. And we know that this kind of thing was taught in the first century church because Paul wrote this to Timothy. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith, follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And so, marriage is not, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, defiling. It is to be honored by all. You are not more spiritual if you remain single. That may be what God has called some of us to, but marriage should be honored and is honorable for and by all. The marriage bed is then pure. It's not defiled. But then it is not to be defiled either. And that's the second part of verse 4. God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The adulterer is the one who commits sexual sin but who is married. The sexually immoral are those who commit sexual sin and they are not married. God calls his people to purity, in particular sexual purity in this context. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. This is God's will that you be sanctified. And then in the NIV there's a colon. This is God's will that you be sanctified. Colon. Here's how you're sanctified. Avoid sexual immorality is what it says. You say, well, I'm married and I have never cheated on my spouse. So I'm covered here. Not so fast. Because Jesus says, you have heard, said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you have lust in your heart, you have committed adultery already. Oh, my friends, we do not have time, do we? To go through all of the myriad ways that this culture presents the opportunity for us to sin against God's command to be holy people. The internet, television... I only have time to say this as your pastor friends. I am concerned about what I hear people talk about that they watch and enjoy on a regular basis. You guys hear me joke sometimes that what I watch on TV is C-SPAN, the news. Now I'm only partly joking. That's about it. And you know why? I can't find it. I can't find the stuff. Here's how simplistic I am. I can't find the stuff that if the Lord Jesus were sitting next to me, that I would feel comfortable watching. I can't find it. But did you know he really is sitting next to you? You know he really is watching? You know he really does care? What we feast our eyes and our minds on and what we teach our children to feast their eyes and their minds on? God has called us to purity. One of the most countercultural things that we could do is to say, no, I haven't seen that TV show, and I probably never will. When people say, have you seen this movie? Do you know what the word is always at the end? Have you seen such and such? What's the word? Yet. What's the assumption? Well, you're going to see it. It's just a matter of time. No, I haven't seen it yet, and I never will. How about that? One of the most countercultural things you could do is to say, I haven't seen it. I don't care about it. It would be to love your spouse as Christ has loved the church. And I wish I had time. I don't. You'll be glad to know. But men, we're commanded to love our wives as Christ has loved the church. We show up at church on Sunday. But on Monday through Saturday in our homes, it's quite a different story than the facade we put on. We must live with purity. And then lastly, if we value Jesus, we live with contentment. Verses 5 and 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We must live with contentment. 
free from the love of money. Some translations just take the love of money and call it covetousness. We are to live free from greed, from coveting more stuff. Did you know that often in Scripture, covetousness and immorality are used together? Why? Because they they tend to go hand in hand. Because the more we amass, now get this, the more we amass, the more money we have, the more opportunities we have to engage our sinfulness. Friends, I don't need more opportunities to engage my sinfulness. I really don't. And so I don't, I mean, I, I go to Vegas? Are you kidding me? I sometimes hear Christians say, well, you know, we went to Vegas. I mean, we didn't do all that stuff, but, you know, I mean, the breakfasts are really cheap at the casinos. I don't need to go to Sin City. I don't need to amass more stuff to give me more opportunities to sin. Here's what the Bible says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Why? Because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We need to be like the great apostle who said this, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. I'm almost done, but one of the ways that we engage this covetousness, this love of money, rather than being content, is because in our day, we've convinced ourselves that we deserve more. I can now say that most of the people listening to me right now are younger than me. pains me to say that, but it's, it's now true. And so we now have a younger generation, generations, that have been taught nothing but you deserve more. I'm not that old, but I can remember when I was a kid, we never went on vacation. We went to see my mom's folks in Pikeville. That was our vacation. The first time I crossed the border into Florida was on my class trip. The next time was after I'd been married to Kim for for eight years. Now, my girls live at a different time. We've been able to take them twice to Disney World. I'm thankful for that. I thank God for that time of respite. But friends, you need to understand, though you've grown up with that mindset, and though many of us have had these luxuries long enough to forget what it was like back in the day, the truth is none of us deserves that stuff. We've got to lose the idea that these vacations are an entitlement of mine, that these things that I want to amass are an entitlement of mine. They are not. And they are to be used for God's purpose because He is the one who ultimately owns them. And we're told that we can do that. We can have this contentment because you have this promise from God. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I'll not be afraid. What can man do to me? Notice the last part of verse 6. It's a quote. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. It's a quote from the first part of your Bible, Psalm 118 and verse 6. Psalm 118 is a song, and it's a song that God's people would joyfully sing together at festive occasions. In the early church, it was uh, often sung after the Lord's table, Psalm 118. In fact, when the the Bible tells us that the, the Last Supper, when Jesus instituted the Lord's table... That they sang a song and went out into the night, it is in all likelihood that they sang Psalm 118. And those words are included. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Friends, is the Lord your helper? (laughs) Has he shown that in Jesus Christ? Then do you need to be afraid of not having what you need? Do you need to be do you need to fret about stuff about having more? Do you need to be covetous and amass more? 
The answer is no. Why? Because I have a God who is my helper. I don't need to fear the loss of my stuff. It's his stuff. He will take care of me. He's the one who provides my needs. All my needs will be met in Christ Jesus. We have the promise of Philippians 4.19. So friends, we are not Sunday-only Christians. Monday through Saturday. What does that look like? It looks like people who value Jesus because they love the way Jesus loved. It looks like people who live the way Jesus has told us, consistent with his character, living pure lives and living contented lives. We're going to pray. I ask you, is that the kind of life you're leading as a professing Christian? If you're here and you say, I don't know what all that's about, man, that sounds pretty radical to me. Good. Then you've heard the message right. Because it's not just an escape, it's a way of life. But Jesus bids you to enter that way of life. And he invites you to do that. And here's how he invites you to do that. You're apart from him right now. You don't have a relationship with him right now. No one comes into the world with a relationship with God. But you can have a relationship by having your sin that separates you from God taken care of. And how is it taken care of? Here's how. You realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that God came to die and pay the penalty for your sin. And notice the word I used earlier in the message. You repent. You say, Lord, I want to go your way and not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray. And when we do that, if you've never come to Christ as Savior, you acknowledge that you're a sinner. You acknowledge that he paid the penalty for your sin. You tell him that you want to follow him from this day forward. He will forgive your sin, give you a relationship with him, and start you on this new way of life. Dear Christian friend, we may need to confess. Let's do that together in this sacred time. Let's bow. Father, we thank you for the words of Scripture that are convicting for me and convicting for your people, no doubt. Because, Lord, I know I don't measure up. I know none of us measures up. Lord, I know how difficult, yea, impossible this is for me to carry out. But I thank you that this is all done because we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, who then empowers his people to do what pleases him. So, Lord, help us then to be people who are not allured by all that dazzles in the world, but rather we're allured by the beauty of who you are and what you have done. We value Jesus Christ above all things. May that be seen in our relationships, the way we love one another. May it be seen in the way we live countercultural lives, lives of purity in a very sensual culture, lives of contentedness in a very materialistic culture. And I pray, Lord, that there are your people all over this room who are confessing our failures but availing ourselves of the blood of Jesus. And you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, Lord, we would ask you to move upon the hearts of people and draw them to yourself in this moment. That there are those here who have not heard the good news of Jesus Christ, that they can have a new and better and eternal way of life. That they're availing themselves of that now so that they can live lives for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand for our closing song?